Welcome to the podcast, Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Good morning. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Marna, and good morning, Kelly. Yeah, it's good to have both of you here. Our goal is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. There's no unifying theme for the questions I'm posing today, except to say I'm expecting a range of responses from my panel. We rarely offer one prescriptive answer, and that's why we say this is a thought-provoking discussion, not a dialogue about doing the right thing. Right off the bat, here's a tough scenario to tackle. When my children were younger, we went to a family resort at Cape Cod for Labor Day weekend. On this weekend, the resort had scheduled three weddings. I had seen one extended family around the resort, a very attractive family, and I was watching for that wedding because I thought it would be a beautiful one. It never happened, however. On the day that I checked out, I went to the office, and it was filled with buckets of hydrangeas. I asked if there was a wedding that day, and the manager said, Well, it was supposed to be yesterday, but two nights ago, the groom dove off the dock at 2 a.m. at low tide and broke his neck. So, let's assume, for the purposes of this discussion, that on the eve of his wedding, the groom was paralyzed in an accident. What ethical obligation is his fiancée under now, given these changed circumstances? Is she ethically bound to go through with the marriage? Mike, I'm going to start with you. You know, Marna, we've had a a huge trauma in our own country lately, and it's been this pandemic. And one of the words we use in New York, I'm sure they use it elsewhere too, but, um, you know, it's called the New York pause. And the governor has said, we just need to kind of stop what we're doing and things are going to change and we don't have much control over it. And I see this scenario in a similar vein. I think there needs to be a pause. And I don't think you can be prescriptive to anybody in this situation, either the injured fiance or the woman who is now, whose marriage has been upended, perhaps delayed, perhaps will never take place. I think everybody just needs to take a deep breath. I mean, when you think about a a neck injury, a paralyzing neck injury, that's a recovery which takes years, and then it's life-changing. His life will never be the same, and I've, I've seen this happen personally. So I think the fiancé, the woman, is under the obligation not necessarily to go through with the wedding, but to do the loving thing and be there for her fiancé in his recovery. And, and again, that's, that's a very long-term thing. But I, I think it would, it would be very unsan- unwise. It would not be a good idea for anybody to rush out and get married, you know, as soon as they possibly could based on what happened here. It's, there's a lot of grieving that has to go on and that's not a good time to get married. So, right. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Mike. I want to talk a little bit about the legal aspects of marriage though. This is definitely a very sad scenario. And when you think about it, as if it were your own son or daughter. I mean, you're heartbroken, and you don't want them to be abandoned at the altar. But, you know, you're not married until you're married. (laughs) And we all joke about that. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, so I agree with Mike. This is a very sad scenario. And if it was my son or daughter, of course, I would be heartbroken, and I would hate for them to be abandoned at the altar. Having said that, 
marriage is a lifetime commitment and you're not married until you're married right and we all know of people who have changed their mind um, or who have had their fiance change his mind or her mind and the marriage didn't occur and it was probably for the best marriage is a contract and it changes your legal status you have new rights and obligations so and marriage is regulated by the states and there are limitations as far as who can get married and under what circumstances for example you're only allowed to be married to one person at a time you you have to be of age in most states you have to be well in all states you have to be 18 and there are some exceptions with parental consent and some other things in many states you're tested um, to see if you have any kind of transmitted diseases so and you have to have the legal ability to marry you have to have the ability to consent and enter into a contract and i would argue under these circumstances you have not just one individual but two individuals who are not really in a position to consent to this, you know, momentous contract. She's under tremendous duress, trying to do the right thing, and he is not well, and he his future is very uncertain. So it's just not a good situation legally to move forward. And in fact, you know, there, there are avoidable marriages that subsequent to the marriage, one of the parties can come forward and have the marriage determined to be voidable. And, and this could be one of those situations where you have somebody that's unable to consent because of age, mental incapacity, illness. So I would just say, take that pause that Mike talked about. You know, she's not ethically obligated to go through with the marriage. And in fact, it would be a mistake for her to do so. Uh, circumstances have changed significantly. It's hard not to feel like you have to do the right thing, but she could end up divorced or even have, have the marriage annulled. She should stop. They should take their time. She should support him and just see things, you know, see where things go with their new now. Yeah, I don't know that I can add anything additional to what you both have said. I just put in my notes here, that this is a day-by-day situation and that, yes, the fiancé should be with him during the recovery in the hospital and the rehab. But as far as the marriage, like Mike said, I think you're looking at at least a year down the road making a decision on that. And there's been no vow in sickness and in health yet. And now the circumstances have changed so dramatically. She's now looking at being a full-time caregiver instead of having an active partner and if they wanted children in the marriage, you know, that might that might be a question now. So I think it's a day-by-day wait and see and make a decision later. I will say I have read some beautiful stories of service members coming back from Iraq with missing legs or disfigured burns, and they do get married to their fiancés when they get home. That's a really uplifting story. You know, we often talk about moral and ethical obligations in this podcast, and I think I think for the woman... Her moral and ethical obligation is to is to accept what's happened and then try to be part of the solution for uh, her fiance. It's not what she planned on. It's not what she wanted. It's not what it's not what they expected their future to be. But until it just is proven that it won't work out, I think she has to be there for him. And, w- and we can only hope that the relationship was was sound to begin with. So yeah, that's quite it's, a test. It's, it's a heartbreaker. This it is, is. A heartbreaker. Yeah, it really is. And it's hard. I think your first instinct is that she should do the right thing and, and she should go through with it. That was my first instinct. If I were in her shoes, I would be like, oh, I love him. 
these were our plans, you know, I must follow through. But when you look at it from a distance, objectively, that's really the wrong thing to do. And that would be a mistake. But it's absolutely the right thing to stick with him and support him and see where things go. I mean, marriage is hard enough. <laughs> it's really tough enough. Yeah, yeah. So For sure. That's, yeah, that's well put. Well, I will tell you that I, I took some liberties on this story. He was actually not paralyzed. He did break his neck, but the EMTs were able to stabilize him and get him to the hospital. So he wasn't paralyzed. It was very, very dangerous and close. He, he had been, he was drunk. The, the groom was drunk and diving off the dock at low tide in the middle of the night. But he was not paralyzed, but he was badly injured. Well, thank goodness. Hopefully yeah. he recovered and they set another date and they're living yeah. their lives. <laughs> I hope you're right. Living their best life. There you go. Yeah. Stick with us. We'll be right back with a, another scenario. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. We're on to scenario number two. This is similar to the scenario in season one, episode 10, where one neighbor tore out the trees and underbrush that divided his backyard from his neighbors. All the trees were on his property, so it was his prerogative, but the actions changed the privacy and character of his next-door neighbor's yard. So we discussed the ethics of that. In this situation, a couple bought a house with a dock on the river. Soon after they moved in, they had a hydraulic lift installed on the dock where they stored their large motorboat. Then they built a roof over the entire dock. All of this work was approved, permitted, and in line with municipal codes. The neighbors on either side registered their concerns about the structure to no avail. The new dock with roof and hydraulic lift and big boat blocked the neighbors' panoramic view of the river, which they had previously enjoyed. After this, the relations between the neighbors were very frosty. So, who owns the view of the river, and what do you do when your plans interfere with someone else's quality of life and perhaps their property value? Who wins? Well, I have a friend who lives on the river, and they recently had a tree removed on the bluff overlooking the river, and in the empty space, she said, you know, it'd really be nice to put a screened-in gazebo there. And I said, why don't you do it? And she said, because it would ruin my next door neighbor's view of the river, and I don't want to do that to them. As much as she wanted it, she didn't want to do something that would annoy her neighbors and destroy their quality of life as far as the river goes. So whenever we talk about these situations, I think it's important to be considerate of the people around you and talk to them and also examine other options that would be less intrusive rather than just barging through with your original plan which is going to affect other people so negatively. And I don't know what the solution could be, but I feel certain they could have hammered out some reasonable solution and some compromise, which would have left everybody happier than they are. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, some good thoughts there, Marna. And I tell you, I've seen this many times in many places where, you know, somebody comes in with a new vision, a new idea, they buy a piece of property, and they dramatically changed the nature of the area. We live in the very northern part of New York State here, and it's an area where there are lots of lakes and lots of summer homes, and it's been that way for 150 years. So there are some areas which are pretty well defined as to what the the look and feel of them is, and our laws and codes up here, at least in the Adirondack Park, are very restrictive, so you can't do certain things 
um, that would change the look and feel. But in this case, you know, if they stayed within the codes and they had proper building permits and it was inspected and all that stuff, technically it's their right. But it doesn't make anything better for the neighborhood, you know, this one family who's now lost its view. You know, I learned something the other day. I recently joined a an organization up here called the Champlain Area Trail System. You know, we develop and maintain trails in this part of New York State. And you can actually buy an easement for a view. So it's a property right, at least in some cases. I don't know where it applies, but it's something that you can purchase. You can buy from a landowner the right to preserve a view. And, you know, we've been talking about that in a couple cases uh, with this organization I'm part of. So anyhow, all that being said, I think the family that moved in was within its rights, but uh, it certainly didn't help uh, relationships in the neighborhood. You're right about that. Kelly, what do you think? Oh, this is why life can be so frustrating and exasperating. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I mean, there's just always going to be jerks and idiots. There just is. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's going to be people like your friend who are quietly thoughtful and don't take actions that would impact others. And then there's just people that are always going to think, well, that's my right. I can do that. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's my land. I can do what I want. And they're, you know, technically, as Mike said, you know, they're right. And, you know, people should be kind and thoughtful, but often they're not. And in this situation, no one wins. I mean, all you can do is try to handle this adversity with grace because this individual has done everything technically correctly, right? The work was approved, permitted, in line with code. So, you know, there's no issues. But you can definitely impact your neighbors by what you do. I mean, we've moved around a lot. And I was thinking when I reviewed this scenario about, you know, our house hunting. I remember one time going to look at a house that we both, my husband and I, really liked. But the next door neighbor looked like he was, we joked, like communicating with aliens. He had this huge satellite dish. It looked like it had like aluminum foil on top of it, Um, (laughs) junk in the yard. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he was a prepper, what was going on. You got to take that into consideration. Yeah, but we're like, oh, my goodness, this is a problem. And, you know, if we move again fairly soon, this is going to impact our ability to resell and our property value. So that house was out. And I felt bad for those people because that neighbor was harming their ability to sell. The other thing was, you know, there's a sex offender registry in many states. And I always encourage my clients to check that. I mean, know where the sex offenders are. Be aware of that. Be careful. So when we house hunted, we were very mindful of that. And we found another house, you know, in a lovely neighborhood. And Before we wrote the contract, I was down in Texas. My husband was up here in Pennsylvania. He was in the realtor's office getting ready to sign the contract. And I insisted that they get on the computer and check the sex offender registry, which the realtor thought was ridiculous because of the neighborhood and the town, etc. Well, guess what? Right next door. No, no. Wow. Yes, yes. Yes, right next door. I won't get into the house values, but very expensive, lovely neighborhood, Guy sitting there, convicted um, in federal court of child pornography, several counts, had been released from federal prison. Jeez. Sitting right there, no job, because who's going to hire that guy? Wife and kids left. He's sitting in the house all by himself. 
I have three three young yeah. kids. Wouldn't wow. want him for a neighbor. Wow. That was the end of that. And <laughs> then the realtor was shocked. Of course, we didn't do the contract. And then she commented later to my husband, you know, maybe that's why there's so many houses for sale in that neighborhood. It was like a small development. So, I mean, people impact your in- ability to enjoy your, your home or your real property. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. not a lot you can do about it. No, it's true. You do run into these situations in life. And it's unfortunate what happened to their view. It is, but it happens. Like It does. My family has a, not me, but my my mother's family has a a summer home out on Long Island, and um, the house was purchased in the early 60s. And I know at some point, you know, we want to redo the house, and we would definitely want to, um, you have to stay on the same footprint. Suffolk County is very strict about code, but you can go up. And most of our neighbors have knocked down their homes and rebuilt them and brought them up. And we'd like to do that. It will definitely impact the homes behind us. You know, we haven't done it, but I think that that's what we'll ultimately do. And I feel bad for the homes behind us, but, you know, it's our property and it's our house and it's been in the family for generations. And we should, if it's approved, we should be able to do that. Otherwise, it's a small, very small footprint. We wouldn't and, and Suffolk County won't let you go closer to the water, we wouldn't, we would have a house that only, you know, with one bathroom and a couple of bedrooms. So that's an unintended consequence of the requirement to build on the same footprint. Exactly. And and, and then, you know, the, the mean water line and, and how close you can go to that. It gets complicated. And, and to be honest, we will we will not go to our neighbors and go, hey, do you mind? We won't. The other neighbors didn't do that. Well, in our scenario here, say you are a neighbor, you're one of the neighbors on either side, and you see this structure being built, can you script a reasonable confrontation with your neighbor? What would you say to the person building this monstrosity? Let's leave it to Tactful Mike. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you just don't know. I mean, it's up and moving before. I mean, something can be framed in a day. And you just don't have any idea. I think when you see something going on, you need to go over and introduce yourself and say, hey, you know, this is who I am. This is how long we've been here. You know, we really, we really love this place. We love it because of its character and its uh, kind of feel. And uh, we just hope you appreciate it, too. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd ask that you not, you know, we have this, this view of the river that's on your land. And it's really important to us. And... Um, so, you know, I think you kind of go in really soft up front, but you definitely ought to make your feelings known. But that takes being there. You know, sometimes people have multiple homes and they may come back after a, an extended absence and, whoa, look what happened. You know, the neighbors, you know, doubled the size of their house. I've seen it so many times. So, tough one. Really tough. Yeah. Well, in fairness, too, the the neighbors may not have even considered their other neighbor's view when they came up with these plans. So this may be a totally new revelation to them. Well, that's why I'm mentioning jerks and idiots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I don't know how you could not know what you're doing. You know, like when I talk about my mother's family's summer home, you know, it, if at some point in the future the house is redone, we're going to know exactly what we're doing. See, what's different there, though, is it sounds like you're one of the last ones to do it out there on Long Island. That's correct. Um, You're right. And everybody around you has kind of set that precedent. And, you know, I've, I've seen little villages in Hawaii have this problem where beautiful, traditional Hawaiian one level homes and then 
you know, on either side, somebody comes in and builds on the same footprint uh, a three-story uh, mansion. And then you have this dwarfed little home in between that uh, really has lost its value. It's only valuable because of the land at that point. So Right. And you know it's just a matter of time till someone right. comes in and yeah. knocks it down and... You know, I think it bears mentioning here that this is where forward-looking and thoughtful uh, municipal planning comes into play. If a community, be that a, a formal municipality or a neighborhood with a neighborhood association or a homeowner's association, if they want a certain look-feel, and that's the majority opinion in that area, they've got to protect it. And you can do that. Um, you can put things in place that will maintain the character of your area, your neighborhood, your town. And I tell you, that's been done with tremendous effect. Uh, I think of some of the towns in Vermont where there are just certain things aren't allowed on the main street, like a McDonald's. And so it, it has turned these villages uh, into something which now is is pretty rare so it, it looks like it did 50 years ago and that's that can be pretty special so some forward-thinking people maintain the charm of the villages yeah but you know that's always going to make somebody mad you know it's going to make somebody really angry who's been there for 150 years and wants to sell their double lot to mcdonald's so, right <laughs> you know <laughs> you're going to take a loss somewhere let's put it that way McDonald's have really changed the landscape in this country, haven't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's nothing like a quarter pounder with cheese, though. <laughs> yeah, Kelly, yeah, keep knocking those down. I'm, yeah. a French, I'm a French fry gal myself. Okay, don't go away. We have a final ethical dilemma coming up after the break. Welcome back. We're on our third and final scenario. This one took place at a large, dressy gala, which was raising funds for a worthy charity. There were many people attending from all parts of the income spectrum. A gentleman of more modest means was there, and he accidentally spilled his red wine on another female guest. He offered to pay for the cleaning of the dress. It turns out, however, that the dress was a $1,500 Halston beaded number, and it couldn't be dry-cleaned. So the dress was effectively ruined. Is the male guest responsible to pay for the dress, to replace the dress? What are some possible ways to resolve the situation? I'm going to you first, Kelly. Tell her to keep the dress in the closet. Uh, (laughs) If she's worried about something getting on the dress, then she ought not wear it. I mean, accidents happen. If she's going to wear the dress, it's possible wine or food or something could spill on it. I mean, accidents happen. There's a legal theory called assumption of the risk. And that's when an individual voluntarily and knowingly assumes the risk inherent in a generally dangerous activity. For me, that's drinking wine or eating. Like like attending a charity gala? (laughs) Yeah, because you could spill on yourself. It can happen. Oh, I see. Okay. (laughs) It's on you when you wear that dress. And um, it defeats um, assertions you know, that it was somebody else's fault that you got wine or food on your dress. I'm half joking, but I'm half not joking because really she wore the dress 
and accidents happen. It's ridiculous if she thinks this poor gentleman is going to have to pay for the dress. And that's whether he's of modest means or very wealthy. What she should do is either keep the dress in her closet and admire it or get an insurance rider to her homeowner's policy. I was reading and kind of looking at different policies. And in 2015, um, American International Group, AIG, launched its wearable collections coverage insurance program. It's for high net worth individuals, high net worth clients. Apparently, this is fairly common. I saw that several other insurance companies are insuring, you know, certain wearable collections. And I know years ago, women used to get a rider on their mink coats, for example. Um, You certainly get riders on your jewelry. So she should have gotten a rider on her Halston dress. And then this gentleman, if he wants to be kind, you know, could offer to cover the deductible. But otherwise, I I think she's assumed the risk and she's on her own. But she can't get a rider now after the damage is done, can she? Oh, no. She should have thought about it and taken care of it prior to putting the dress on and and eating in it. That's interesting. That was going to be one of my questions, if if she could possibly uh, file a claim with insurance on this, because it's so expensive. No, I mean, if she just has a standard homeowner's policy, it's going to specifically exclude this kind of, uh, you know, high value item, just like it's, you know, our homeowners is not going to cover, you know, an engagement ring or a, a special piece of jewelry. You've got to get that appraised or present a purchase receipt and and then buy a, a specific rider from your insurer for okay. the item. Okay. Thanks, Kelly. Mike, what do you have to add? Yeah, I'm totally with Kelly on this one. You However, agree with Kelly again? You're doing I that a do. lot lately. I do, yeah. I can't help myself. Um, you know, but I just, I'm all of a sudden feeling really inadequate because I've never referred to any of my clothes as a collection you know, a wearable collection. It's a wearable collection. Yeah, like. A wearable yeah. collection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I've never in my I'm life had a $1,500 outfit. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, yeah, I think when you wear that kind of dress to a charity gala, which is a pretty showy event to begin with, I mean, you're there to be seen and she's trying to make a statement. You know, there's a lot going on there and just really bad luck that somebody dumped red wine on her, you know. I I would note that I used to work in a building in Washington, and uh, it was a new building, and it had, everything was white, and we were going to host an event there, and I was told that you can do whatever you want, except you cannot have red wine in the building. I mean, there was none allowed in the building to begin with, so maybe she should restrict her activities if she's going to wear that dress to a white wine event. That would be my thought. Right, or any place where there is going to be red wine, which is everywhere, don't wear it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was talking about this scenario to my sister and her kids, my niece had a great idea, which I'm going to mention here. She said the two of them, the man and the woman, can have a conversation about an amount of money that the man could donate to the charity for which the gala was um Nice. The gala was for. Nice. And uh, and he could make an, a donation to the charity and an agreed upon amount. There we go. In, yeah, in memory really, of in memory of the dress. <laughs> that's that's really clever. You have a smart niece. Yes, I do. We'll have some end notes for you after the break.
Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. This is the end notes portion of our show, the part of our show where we each like to leave you with something to think about for the coming week, and it may or may not be related to the content of today's show. I'll start with you, Mike. I'm agreeing with Kelly on all aspects now, which, you know, I don't think it benefits the uh, the vitality of this podcast. I think you have Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's time I shut up. <laughs> okay, Kelly, anything? No, I just, I think the kind of the theme of today is, you know, that life can be very frustrating and challenging, and we want to try to handle adversity uh, with grace and patience. This is a big struggle for me, for sure. Um, in my house, we have a saying, um, it's, I guess I'll go ahead and say it, it's shit happens. And it does. It does. And it, and it just does to all of us. And it's something uh-huh. we just have to try to deal with um, yeah. and work through. Yes, I have a friend whose daughter is graduating from Virginia Tech tomorrow in a virtual graduation. So the class of 2020 doesn't get the, you know, the pageantry and the rite of passage of graduating. And we were talking about that, and she said, my friend said, yeah, it sucks, but that's the way it is. Isn't that a good philosophy to have these days? Well, yeah, it's, we need it. Sucks, it sucks, but it. that's the way it is. Yeah, and you can even try to find a bright side. I mean, I, I know that that's, I can't imagine how difficult that is. And and we should all have the ability to, to feel sad and, and to grieve. But I think also there's a lot of bright spots and positivity we can find in what's going on today. And I think we have to try to focus on that. Yes. And I did a video on 40 things to make you smile during lockdown. And I'll post that on our website. Oh, yeah. That's great, Marna. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Yeah. Grace, patience and acceptance. We could all work on that for sure. What about you? Do you have a similar incident to tell us about or a question? Send it to us at our email address, inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com. You can also leave a comment or voicemail at our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. If you want to support what we're doing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and recommend Ethics and Etiquette to your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for being with us this week, and please join us again next week for an all-new episode. See you then.